You're listening to the Pilot Photog Podcast. I'm your host, Juan, also known as Tog. Let's listen to the story of the EC-130Q and its mission to communicate with ballistic missile submarines in case of an attack. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the Pilot Photog Podcast. My guest today is Scott. Scott was a Navy flight technician on the EC-130Q, stationed out of Barbers Point, Hawaii, and part of an operation or mission known as Takamo. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Juan. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege. Thank you. So a lot of people out there are probably not familiar with or may have never even heard of Takamo. Can you explain what Takamo is and what the overall mission is? Sure. Glad to. It's um, unusual, actually, the name Takamo. Um, it's unusual in military parlance as far as the, the use of the term. Um, Takamo was actually a uh, coined phrase uh, back as early as 1960-61, uh, where purportedly either a CNO or head of the Naval Air Development, uh, speaking to the people that were charged with developing a communication system for the president effectively to communicate with the new Polaris submarines. And they wanted to use an airborne platform and they had made their decision to develop that along the lines of of VLF communication, very low frequency radio communication, which we'll talk a lot more about later. And the commander, CNO or whomever it was, reportedly said, now take charge and move out. And some savvy lieutenant or some other people picked that up and wrote down the acronym TACAMO. And interestingly enough, um, most other missions, they have, you know, some sort of a sexy combat name to them, right? Or, you know, ABNCP, Airborne Command Post, or uh, early AWACS, uh, Airborne uh, Warning and Control stuff. You know, they got sexy acronyms, not TACAMO, take charge and move out. Um, I always thought that was kind of a, a wacky thing, and it has its own myth and lore. Um, but uh, Takamo is a mission that is responsible for allowing the National Command Authority, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the uh, respective uh, unified and specified commanders that work under in the military system to communicate in the original, the fleet ballistic missile submarines, the Polaris submarines at sea that... Uh, started deploying in the very early 60s. And the means of communication was a powerful VLF transmitter in the back of the airplane in the C-130, just like everybody, well, everybody's a big thing to say, but most people recognize as an old-fashioned looking cargo airplane that it was from the 50s and has continued to survive and uh, and thrive. But anyway, uh, they packed a, a VLF transmitter, and because VLF is long wave communication, um, a long trailing wire antenna, an apparatus that literally spun several miles of antenna wire out the back of the airplane and then charges up with this transmitter to communicate over very long distances because there are some very unique characteristics to VLF transmissions that made them and make them today a very important part of uh, our national uh, communication system with our, uh, uh, our our secure resources. That's a great explanation. 
So it's interesting because, as you said earlier, a lot of acronyms stand for something, right? ECM, electronic countermeasures. Um, you know, each letter usually represents an entire word, but Takamo is more of a condensing of a phrase: "Take charge and move out." It's um, it, the fun thing about it is, and and um, I, as I, I I thought about and I was preparing for this, I was thinking about you know, um, we'd be at bases, um, and and doing the mission, and. They were not always Navy bases, often Air Force bases, sometimes Marine bases. And uh, we'd be trundling around in our flight suits. And some uh, chap not used to seeing uh, air crews milling about and say, yo, what are you with? And you, you just say, uh, we're with Takamo, turn around and walk away. And <laughs> no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Even people in the military it. didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was, you know, drop the mic, tack them up. Boom. Right. Out. That's it. Go on. And <laughs> and then, you know, the poor guy's probably sitting there going tactical air command, you know, trying to think of a, a, a name for every letter. Right. Yeah. It's, it's something that makes acronym. sense in military parlance. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is this is from outward appearances, largely a normal looking C-130 that's been modified. And, and we'll get into the modify, modifications in a minute. To me, it's fascinating. You said miles of wire that are deployed in the air behind the aircraft, correct? Yes. Wow. And, and how thick is this wire? What's the gauge roughly? Interestingly, in, in the beginning, it was heavier um, and it would drag out as many as five miles. Wow. And uh, it was probably a little over an eighth of an inch in diameter. The, the later wire, when they moved from one wire to a twin wire, which is a fascinating bit of technology, it went to a thinner wire. And, uh, and the, the lengths got a little bit shorter um, as far as the antennas was concerned. But effectively, that all works out from a physics perspective. And if you want to ask questions about that stuff, we'll talk about it. <laughs> I'm a theory and, you know, electromagnetics and everything else, um, which we may or may not get into. We'll see. But I just I'm imagining from a just from a practical standpoint. So you've got five miles of wire behind this aircraft. Now, rough numbers of, of miles, about 5,000 feet, 5280. But just for quick math, five miles, 5,000 feet, that's 25,000 plus feet. So you've yep. got to be at an altitude, I'm imagining, of at least 30,000 feet just to deploy this, right? Yeah, not actually. Um, interestingly enough, the C-130 service ceiling isn't really that high. Um, it'll, it'll operate that high, but uh, everybody's sucking on a bottle at that altitude. <laughs> and uh, and, and that, that severely impacts um, operational effectiveness and endurance. But I will say at least the 130s I flew in had locks. And it's a complete aside, but breathing bottled oxygen versus breathing locks out of a converter is the difference between breathing polluted air and fresh air. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. So no, the aircraft didn't have to operate that high because you think about it, even if you tie a stone to the end of a, a rope and throw it, if you capture a image of that at any point in time in the arc of that stone flying through the air, that antenna is not dropped straight down below it. Right. It's yeah. trailed. So uh, even in the original and in, in, in certain operational conditions, the wire would be used in trail. But the normal operating procedure was this fascinating development that uh, some very brave men and really rickety machines back in the late 50s and early 60s did with some uh, Navy versions of the uh, Air Force's EC-121. Warning Star, the radar picket aircraft of the era, 
uh, the Navy's was called the Willie Victor. They gutted the thing and then put this big um, target towing winch in the bottom of the thing and drug um, the wire out behind it and learned that they could create an environment because the physicists told them they needed to do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They could create an an environment where the the bottom two-thirds of that long five-mile antenna would hang vertically and you would orbit around the top of it in a point turn in the aircraft. So pilots, and you'll speak to this better than me, point turn is putting the tip of the wing on a point on the ground and then flying a circle around it. Right. Turns about a point is how I learned it. Yeah. And that would cause the bottom two thirds of the antenna to hang uh, mostly vertically. Wow. And um, that um, would, of course, shorten the overall length of the antenna from a vertical perspective. It would also create a really wonderful environment, a far more effective environment for the DLF transmitter to communicate with the submarines than even land stations that required tremendously more power. To do the same, but because of the characteristics of the Earth, they have to use multiples of power than what an airplane would have to do to achieve a similar result. Um, so that orbit thing was a big deal about being able to use that antenna with this high-powered VLF transmitter, and that was the whole point of developing the aircraft and the system to do so, because those long-wave transmissions could reach the submarines with the um, EAMs. And the emergency action message. So we'll we'll get more into the the turns about a point and the and the antenna hanging down nearly vertically. Um, what was the effective range once you set this up and you had the cable out and you were orbiting a point? How far how far away could a submarine be and still receive your signals or send signals to you? Or is that classified? <laughs> it isn't classified. It's a it's it is um, an interestingly loaded question, and I'll answer it in this way both speaking to uh, land-based and shore-based. The megawatt transmitter that is at uh, Cutler, Maine, um, is able to communicate with the vast majority of the oceans that we consider to be important to us. Mm -hmm. Um, The 200,000-watt transmitter that I flew with was able to communicate very effectively with what would be considered 80% of the Northern Hemisphere's theater of interest for the United States. We were in the Pacific, and we had our sister squadron in the Atlantic. Um, So between the two, the system was effective covering everywhere we needed to in the the Northern Hemisphere. Wow. This is, um, it sounds like a network of aircraft, right? It's not one aircraft, obviously, just flying. You've got several up at different points along the uh, Atlantic and, and Pacific Oceans. Uh, and then they form sort of a, a web or a network of, of relay stations. Can we think of it like that? Or how does that work? No, um, no. Um, although that makes sense in today's modern world of communication nodes. No. Um, the aircraft that was flying, nice segue into talking about what an alert is. Um, so <laughs> when, when I served, the, um, uh, the, the cool part about it was for me, and I, I was very invested in it. I, I was... Absolutely. I had, I drank the Kool-Aid, ate the hot dogs, man. It was, I thought it was important and it was worthwhile doing and I devoted myself to it. And so did a lot of other men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were three squadrons in the United States during that period of time, one Air Force and um, two Navy that flew 
what they call 365, uh, 24 365 coverage. 100% of the time, there was one aircraft on duty, on alert, airborne alert, to handle whatever needed to be done. Tacomo Lant at VQ4 out of Patuxent River. Tacomo Pack, when I served out of Barber's Point in, uh, in Hawaii. Um, and uh, the Air Force's um, Airborne Command Center looking glass or later coverall out of Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. And we spoke to one another. We communicated. We were oh. part of that. And there was only those three airplanes that are on 100% alert. There were planes stacked behind you or crews stacked behind you right. that would relieve you. But um, at least at DEFCON 5, there was just the three of us. At other times during exercises, there were a whole lot more airplanes in the air. Wow. Different story. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> there's just so much amazing, like fast, fascinating information here. I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm taking this all in. So thank you. So let's get back to, to the mission as part of a crew member of one of these EC-130Qs. So you're in the aircraft and you fly to a certain point over the ocean and you begin this this orbit, right? And you you deploy the cable. You begin this orbit. How long would you stay in these orbits? Let's talk in, uh, about a typical cruise cycle. Okay. All right. Perfect. We were put on a rotation as a crew, two out of every several weeks. I don't recall exactly. So, and it's not. I'm not trying to be obsequious or obscure about the time frame. I just don't remember how long it was in between that. We would we would go into an alert cycle. We would we would stand an alert at home, a four-hour alert at home before the first mission of the cycle, we would go to the airplane or maybe not even stand being on the four-hour alert. We might have just been the next bird to go. Actually, that's probably more the case than anything. We were the next bird to, to go on deployment, as it were. Uh, we'd go to the bird, we'd uh, pre-flight it, we'd take off, and we would assume the alert. Now, that, for us, leaving Barber's Point, Hawaii, was transiting to um, the West Coast. and um, we would go to Moffett Air Force, uh, Moffett Field at, in Sunnyvale next to the Ames Research Center. Lots of cool stories about that place, too. Um, anyway, so we would go there. Then we would crew rest, and we would assume the ground alert, a 15-minute launch alert, much like we've seen in the movies. The klaxon goes off. Everybody drops into their boots and starts running for an airplane that, before they know their name, which was exhilarating and annoying after you'd done it once or twice. But otherwise, you'd stand that alert. And then after the cycle of the alert, you'd take off and you'd fly another mission. And you go to another base up and down the West Coast. But those missions that happened in those times didn't always involve dragging the wires, as we called it. Okay. Um, often, it was hours of, you know, 10 to 12 hours total mission time, uh, assuming the alert as early as within 15 minutes of wheels up and um granted we couldn't start dragging wire at that point in time but we were wheels up right just flying flying all over the place man <laughs> uh, the the pilots had filed some sort of a flight plan that allowed us to go do regard in some cases um etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and we'd fly up and down the west coast now on a mission where that there was uh, a scheduled exercise we would fly out to an op area and um, that was usually some distance off the coast. 
And it, it was an airspace that was secured from sea level, essentially all the way up to uh, whatever. And um, in those cases, we may or may not drag the wire, but we would drag the wire on uh, on cue. Um, so we would we would know the certain kind of EAM that would come in. And EAMs came in regularly. Exercise EAMs came in regularly. But we would know that on, on a certain kind of EAM that we would do something and we'd drag the wire and pound it out. Or our operations people would tell, uh, you know, the rest of the, the community that we were going to drag the wire and we were going to do our thing on this day. And, uh, and we'd go out and we'd, we'd power up that thing. And uh, we could stay on station dragging the wire depending on how far offshore we thought we needed to be to get on station. A good bit of that 12 to 15 hours, that airplane could fly, bro. Wow. So you, you'd be dragging the wire. You could potentially drag the wire 12 to 15 hours in a flight. Uh, let's call it. We'll call it that it has, you have an hour, two hour round trip transit time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so eight to 10 hours now. Wow. Now, I've never heard of a situation that being done. Right. Um, but, you know, there was nothing. You know, the, the airplane had the power, uh, you know, the effectiveness of the transitor, transmitter and trail versus the transmitter in orbit uh, was clearly different things. But nonetheless, you can be on the air. Explain basically why, you know, in, in sort of layman's terms, why, why the VHF, uh, you know, frequencies were, were so effective and, and could be broadcast for so many miles. So this is a cool part of this, my friend. Crazy thing. I discovered a, a number of different things, not the least of which is that way back in the, uh, in the 19th century with the telegraphs, the telegraphers would hear buzzing noises and whistling in the wires. And they found out that was lightning. Well, time goes by and uh, I love, along comes Marconi and he's successful in uh, developing a wireless system. And you can take uh, his contract with uh, Tesla and all you want, but nonetheless, he came to market and he deployed a number of worldwide wireless stations, which were essentially arc transmitters. It was just, it was like a welding machine that they were turning on and off and, it was, and they hooked it to an antenna and some dude a long ways away could pick it up. Now uh, that, that wireless um, was effectively a long wave, a low frequency, long wave. So HF, for instance, what we all understand is shortwave from the World War II and BBC and all that kind of stuff, Voice of America. Shortwave is HF, and that, that takes the domain up in the 3 to 30 megahertz domain. I think that was somewhere in the, for the, the ham guys, right. uh, meters of some sort. But um, that's pretty much where those guys hang out. VLF is down in the 3 kilohertz to 30 kilohertz uh, radio wave. That's a very, very long wave. The full wave in some cases is, is, you know, 10, 15 miles long. Wow. And, um, and that long wave has a unique characteristic under the right kind of power, right? It, it takes a great deal of energy to make that wave it has the unique characteristics of hugging the curvature of the earth and also relying on characteristics in the atmosphere to allow it to propagate over the curve of the earth and uniquely in that characteristic of propagating over the curve of the earth it also has as some french chaps figured out back in 1917 that it has the ability to penetrate seawater to the order of several meters several tens of meters and um, that makes that very useful slow data rates long wavelength slow data rates but 
you don't need to be fast if you just need to say go. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't and, take much. Don't take much. So that BLF signal was used for a great long time, actually, uh, to communicate with ships through the, uh, the 20th century. The Germans built some very powerful uh, transmitters to communicate with their, um, with their submarines. The Americans and Europeans tended to rely more on shortwave, and, uh, but um, the Navy still pursued building these massive VLF ashore transmitter stations to communicate with resources and assets overseas at long distances. And um, it was uh, for, the, for the Polaris submarines able to communicate over great time periods and distances without saying, hey, here I am, we're coming up for air. We needed to be able to have command and control over them. And VLF was the ticket, is the ticket. So that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people realize that with VLF, the submarine does not have to surface to receive the message, correct? It does not. They typically will drag uh, their own wire. Uh, They have a trailing wire antenna, which was um, part of the real wonderfulness of the movie Crimson Tide, that they didn't get it in other movies where it's made noises in it, but they dragged the wire out there. And that EAM is what that and Crimson Tide is what they were trying to get over their VLF receiver. And that's, again, that's why the submarine is dragging underwater to pick up these VLF signals. Exactly. The receiver antenna. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, tell us what an emergency action message or EAM is. Right on. An EAM, this is all open source. I'm not getting goofy with any of this. An EAM is a message, a, a formatted message from the National Command Authority to what in my day was called PSYOP, Forces Single Integrated Operational Plan, all the strategic nuclear dudes, the bombers, the um, submarines, and the, uh, and the missiles, about you're going to go to war. It was formatted in a way that contained information that was important to um, those commanders and, and people in the launch centers, et cetera. But it was it was usually in my day, it was it, it was a really fun thing to listen for. I, I got a kick out of doing this. So you'd be listening to the to the to the HFs, you know, for hours, just grinding holes in the sky and listening <laughs> to the crap in your ears. Right. Next thing you'd know, you'd hear this guy, Sky King, Sky King, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, one, two. Stand by. Sky King, Sky King, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, one, two. Stand by. Sky King, Sky King, message follows. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Foxtrot, India, Golf, Alpha, Bravo, Delta, one, two. To about 20 to 30 characters and then repeat it. And we'd break out our Dick Tracy coder book and we would learn some things about that. Right. And the um, airborne communications officer and mission commander, typically the same guy, would uh, tell us what we were to do then. And depending uh, on what that message said, we'd drag the wires or we'd just continue boring holes in the sky. It was, it was an interesting experience because not only did it come across the HF videos, it came across everything we had. And the teletypes would light up, and, and we used old mechanical teletypes. 
they they were just like you'd see you'd you saw in all the movies back in the 70s and, and before the interweb and all that kind of stuff these clackety gray machines with big rolls of paper and 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 some places tapes spitting out the side of them making hell's own racket plus the uh the computer systems for the satellite communication all light up that was <laughs> kind of and this fun. is all this is all inside the the ec-130 right in the cargo hold yeah. i mean you've got just equipment stacked to the ceiling and was it crowded was it cramped or you had a little bit of room to move around or not really it was um you know a pretty roomy airplane um it was a shirt sleeve environment we typically would board the aircraft right behind the cockpit on the on the door that typically is seen that is seen on every c-130 that opens up down in front of the propellers on the port side and we'd board there and you could either crawl up into the flight deck or you could go aft and on the port side of the airplane going aft was um a, a galley area which included a table uh that could seat like four or so and uh and then back past the the wheel well and then back into some crew rest area on the port side of all the the electronics equipment the electronics equipment occupied the center line of the aircraft all the way fore and aft aft of what they call the 245 bulkhead the front a part of the cargo area all the way back to the uh, and and including up on the ramp and um on the starboard side you'd kind of come around this little corner and there were nine 19 inch five almost yeah i'll call them almost six foot tall electronics racks that were about three feet deep that that down the center line that on the on the starboard side had four seats and uh we were up against the curve of the wall so to move between the seats you were you were kind of leaning on the curve of the wall this the floor was narrower than the widest part of the wall and but it was it was comfortable typically only two guys would be in comm central at any one time under on un, most conditions during the flying circus drill or uh, an exercise or something like that then then we'd get a whole bunch of people in comm central and and then behind that was um the the big power electronics and transmitters and all that kind of stuff and the reels for the for the antennas um which most people would look inside of a c-130 today and say oh there looks like big boxes inside of a c-130 <laughs> yeah a lot of people don't realize how big electronics equipment used to be with all the tube and and transistor yeah. stuff right yeah still it, it sounds like there was room to move around and and it was relatively that comfortable bed? oh there you go you could say, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. too bad. I mean, if you're going to be there 15 hours, right, you need to be able to at least stretch your legs and move around and those kind of things. Yeah, we weren't sit, we weren't, we weren't clamped into, you know, ejection seats with, uh, with parachutes on and helmets and oxygen breathing devices on ourselves, you know. It's a, uh, it was, it was a very comfortable environment. You know, it's typical military, you know, as much out of the space as they could get it. But uh, at the same time, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't bad. There were bunks to sleep in for the, you know, all the crew needed time on, on long missions. And, uh, you know, you crawl up on top of the PA, the power amplifier, the big PLF power amplifier when it's not running and, <laughs> right. <laughs> and take a nap. That'd wake you up real quick, right? Yeah, it'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Especially anything metallic you had on you. Um, Again, this is this system. Takamo is really the primary mission is to communicate with effectively nuclear submarines, you know, or uh, SSBNs to the fleet ballistic missile submarines, and basically either uh, in in a prelude to war or following, you know, heaven forbid, a, a nuclear attack or a nuclear strike 
to maintain command and control with, with these assets in the ocean. Did I get that right? You got it right. Okay. And one of the things that's important about that, if I just interject real quickly here, is that I hadn't stated it, and it's not something that is um, jumped up and down about, is survivable. Yeah. It wasn't just say go. It was say stop. Right, which is just as important, if not more important. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's critical. There's always, uh, there's been many books and probably a bunch of movies too about, you know, the rogue submarine captain on either side that decides to just somehow launch. And I know that's Hollywood stuff, but in case something like that would happen, you'd have to be able to say to everyone else, stop or. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's an interesting part of that from a mission perspective. And we'll go into a little bit more ethereal thing for a second about mission. Remember, this, these, these aircraft were, uh, and the mission was designed uh, to communicate with the first um, deployed nuclear submarines that had ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads on them. And the doctrine uh, had heretofore been that pull the trigger and everybody dies. Massive assured destruction, mutually assured destruction. At the same time as Polaris came out, surprisingly enough, some, some relatively smart dudes got together and said, hey, this ain't going to work. Here's the twist. Um, it, this ain't going to work because, you know, we've got these submarines out there and the whole point of putting them out there is to make them survivable. How are we going to communicate with them? Which is the, is the weirdness of the whole, and I'll stop about uh, the, the whole Cold War thing. But uh, yeah, so they put these submarines out there and they needed a way to communicate with them. And they had to rethink um, both how they would be used and how to use them. And that's what happened um, at, the, at the latter part of the um, Kennedy administration is certain doctrine changed. They de- adopted a, a philosophy called flexible response. And instead of pulling the trigger and bang, everything goes, it was, we're going to pull the trigger on this part and maybe on this part, but not on this part and not on that part of, of the arsenal that they had available to them. And you needed to have a survivable means to communicate. So it was also about stopping. I imagine the EC-130Qs operated in friendly waters near you know American shores or near friendly nations. Did you ever have, or were there ever plans to have fighter escorts uh, kind of patrolled nearby, or was that talked about at all? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so there was a time frame before I joined the organization uh, that uh, the, the Takamo Pack deployed to uh, Japan and to um, U.S. territories in the South Pacific. And uh, Takamo Lant, the East Coast guys, they, they deployed um, in the Atlantic Theater. I don't know of any time where that they would have flown into airspace where that it might have required that, but that's an interesting thought. I doubt that they would have. They would have kept themselves as far away from anything that potentially could be hostile. You know, you never know. Yeah, you never know. And you have the advantage of extreme long range with your, so you don't need to be close to the source uh, to yeah. transmit or receive. So can you share with us, with the audience, any any kind of, either really interesting or, or maybe even humorous um, situations or scenarios that you found yourself in, in your service? Well, yeah, I don't, uh, I'll, I'll go to one that I, that I thought was the, uh, 
for me, the greatest privilege in a really dark, weird way. There was an exercise that took place over an extended period that included WebinRes, the Worldwide Airborne Resources, which was um, a large portion of the Air Force's network of airborne command posts and radio relay aircraft and airborne launch control centers that they maintained over the heart of America to be able to implement their part of things. And um, there was us in Takamo, and there were a whole boatload of people on the ground somewhere that I heard on the radios, man. I'd never heard of these people before. I looked them up in the Dick Tracy decoder book, and I said, huh. <laughs> so um, that exercise lasted um, uh, a couple – it was a, an extended period of time. And we were out on a mission, and we had been transmitting at full power. And he, he came to me, and he said, now knock it down to uh, quarter power. Hmm. That was, you know, push a button and make it so number one. <laughs> I, I'll tell you about tuning that thing up in a minute uh, when you ask the right question. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so we tuned it down. So we went through the exercise, completed doing what we were doing to simulate a highly degraded communication environment. Mm. So imagine you've been popping caps, big caps for a while, and, and they're buggering with all kinds of stuff. Um, and that's not to make flipping or light of what that really means. Right. Um, but nonetheless, from an EM perspective, um, yeah, uh, this is, this is kind of where I learned about the robustness, uh, of the, of the, um, the signals that we transmitted, because even at that 25,000 Watts that we were transmitting with in depleted situations was the full power of the early generation of Takamo. Wow. Yeah considered reasonably effective. So these EC-130Qs, they've got miles of wire, they've got all kinds of communication equipment on board. What was it like getting everything ready and spooling everything up to transmit? So you get, you, you, you get the EAM and you'd write it down and uh, the ACO, the Airborne Communications Officer, would tell you what we needed to do next. And um, if it was, you know, let's rock and roll, um, the pilot would be notified and the pilot would, and the, and the real operator, a guy sitting in the back operating this big wench, big, um, hydraulic brake son of a gun. I had to, uh, there are two, two antennas out the back of this thing. One of them gets hot and it goes right straight out the beaver tail of the back of the airplane. It goes out off uh, a few thousand feet hmm. and, uh, it, it pretty much, and it only has a 40 pound drogue on it. So it pretty much stays in trail. Then this, the main antenna. The, the, the long wire antenna and this reel was bumped up right in the next PA right before the, um, the paratroop doors, right in the paratroop door area in the 130, just to give a description for folks. Mm -hmm. This trailing wire with an 80 pound drogue on it would drag out and the pilots would do their thing and they put it in the orbit and um, the uh, ACO and, uh, and the uh, airborne communications supervisor, um, uh, typically an, uh, a radio man, uh, sometimes it was an avionics technician like me. I trained. I was going to train to do that. They go through a thing and they create a tape, uh, a perforated tape, like an old-fashioned telegraph tape. And we'd feed that into a reader, and it would process through um, some very sophisticated communications gear that was very sensitive to time. And uh, we'll leave that for a different discussion. 
So anyway, all this stuff uh, in, uh, about timing, which included the cryptographic aspect of it, um, would go through this big processing situation and it'd come back and be ready standing back at the, uh, at the power amplifier. Now, the power amplifier is fed by three 60 to 90 kilovolt amp independent of the aircraft generators on the engines. So they got the regular aircraft generator on one side of the end, uh, the propeller part of the engine, and it's monstrous thing on the other side, hooked right into the big gearbox. And um, it's pumping massive power. The, the, the power lines coming back were half inch in diameter, aluminum, three phase, 400 hertz, 200 volt, God knows how many amps. Yeah. Um, wow. you, know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to touch money. those. <laughs> no, no, a lot of smoke get let out of you. Touch them. That's yeah. damn sure. <laughs> yeah. You'll be around much longer. Um, so anyway, so then uh, you would you would tune up the thing, and it was mostly computer controlled. These these massive inductors called variometers inside, and the computer that controlled them. This these two big water uh, cooled. Uh, metal and ceramic tubes, not the kind you'd see in your mama's Victrola. That's for darn sure. <laughs> um, you know, eight, 10 inches in diameter, about uh, 12 inches tall. Wow. And, and, and they were heated up hot, man. We'd put about 10,000 volts across those things. And, um, and they get hot. So they were cooled by deionized water. And I digress. But anyway, we'd get in there and to get everything aligned, you'd go through the power up sequence. And that meant go to tune power. And this might be into the dummy load for that matter, um, which was just a big ceramic uh, cylinder. Um, and, you, and you get everything aligned and then you might go to half power, but typically it'd be tuned power to full power. And the load that that would put on the airplane was visceral. This X number of thousands of feet of wire dragging out behind the airplane, which have a load on us and we're circling around and, the engines are working because it's dragging a load. And then all of a sudden you put this electrical load on it, which puts a drain on it mechanically. And the whole airplane would slow down a little bit. Wow. Or you'd feel like it would, it would go. Oh, (laughs) oh, sorry for the sound effects. No. Yeah. See, it's okay. You could hear a pitch change, right? Yeah. You'd hear the pitch change. You'd feel the aircraft kind of settle back a little bit, just like taking the throttle off, Mm -hmm. you know, of any airplane. And, and then the gas coming back on and you mill back up into it and, and boom, this thing would start buzzing like crazy. And, uh, and it, it transmitted the signal through this big five inch tube filled with sulfur hexafluoride. It was the coaxial, Not, no electric difference in the coax that hooks to your, your television for your, for your cable TV. Mm-hmm. It's just a bigger version of it. And that would go back in and that would connect into the projector box and go out. But it was just amazing the power of hearing that thing um, start up and knowing, man, you were on the air. <laughs> <laughs> you were broadcasting. Did, did you ever get hit by lightning or fly through a thunderstorm or anything like that? I mean, I just think I picture this giant magnet for electricity in the sky. We tended to try and stay away from storms. Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, the interesting thing of it is, is electrically, the skin of the aircraft was grounded to the long wire antenna. Only the short wire antenna at the very back was actually hot. Huh. And it created something called an off-center fed 
J dipole antenna. Um, and, and that's, and yeah. And we had a uh, lightning arresters and, and static electricity dismissers, uh, little tags on the back of the wings, back of the ailerons, you know? Yeah. The trailing edges. Yep. Yep. And lightning diverter rods all over the thing. Nuisance to change the damn lightning diverter rod. Got in trouble on that one once. Not funny, but funny. I actually uh, was with somebody and they bumped the lift that we were the cherry picker into the airplane. Got in trouble for that. Yeah. Not funny, but funny. <laughs> right. right. None of that ground the entire aircraft. I'm, I'm sure you couldn't fly oh, yeah. immediately. Yeah, it did. It's, it's exactly, that's why it's funny, but not funny. Yeah. You know, bump the damn thing and didn't even scratch the paint, but it was, it had to be reported. I think it left a little one inch, uh, long dent in the, uh, in the, um, aileron trim tab. That and, one on the squawk uh, sheet, right? Oh yeah. That was not a good day. So the, I know the Navy has, a, you know, to a lot of people designations for their, for their squadrons, uh, that, that seem confusing, like, you know, VFA or, or, uh, you know, VS, um, I be- and your unit was, uh, I believe, VQ3. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, VQ3, a bit of a misnomer because <clears throat> the V stands for heavier than air, just like it does for all the heavier than air aircraft. There actually was something for balloons before that, back in the day. Um, and Q stands for reconnaissance um, often, uh, which is a real loose definition of reconnaissance because even electronic warfare um, squadrons um, have uh, the Q in it, but VQ one and two, presumably the first in the in the lot, um, they are true reconnaissance. VQ three and four are the Tacomo squadrons, and and as they developed over time, starting uh, as early as 1964 with you know just a few airplanes, then uh, into the into the 70s uh, where they added some more airplanes. Uh, VQ-3 was deployed to the Pacific from the very beginning, originally to Barber's Point, where I was stationed, and on to Guam. Guam, for those who know and love Guam, I, I spent a week there one day. Um, <laughs> you said a week one day, right? <laughs> so yeah, a day yeah. felt like a week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, that was favorite place. Um, but anyway, they deployed, the VQ-3 originally deployed um, and, and went through some growth process uh, to, to get to Guam. And then they eventually, when I joined them, had moved back to Hawaii uh, with the advent of the Poseidon uh, Ohio-class SSBNs. It's a, it's a purple command, as we used to call them, um, serving more than one master. Um, you know, Air Forces blue and Navy gray and Army uh, green and Marines are red, right? Yeah. If somebody wants to learn more about Takamo and kind of the history of, of Takamo, are there any websites uh, that they could kind of look look for or go to to just read more about this? So certainly the, you know, the Navy's um, first strategic communication wing, um, that'll have a website and I'll have some history stuff there, um, mostly talking about today. There is a couple of Takamo, I just surf... Um, and forgive me, I, I'll have to provide something like that, but I do have some links. The answer is yes. Are there any other topics or areas that you want to either dive deeper into or talk about? Well, I did I did mention a moment ago, I, I went off on my rant about the, the power amplifier and I, I fell into a reverie. The the thing that was cool about that exercise where we were, we were fussing around with that stuff is that on our trigger, 
on 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 on, on my mission's trigger. Uh, the USS Ohio sitting off of um, Point Magoo uh, in Southern California fired a Trident C4 with 10 uh, MERV warheads on it, dummy warheads, right. down to the Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands and dropped those, uh, those uh, dummy warheads in, into, the, um, into buckets, as they call them down there. The reports came out afterwards is that they did a pretty damn good job. <laughs> and, and for those for those who may not know, the the MIRVs are basically a nuclear, a single missile or rocket that has multiple warheads. And in this case, one missile then deploys ten warheads that can be independently targeted to ten separate targets. Right? Within what they call a footprint, that's absolutely correct. You can't target one to go at Tokyo and one to go at London off. Of right? No, no, they're they're, they're going <laughs> suborbital. They they turn they face yeah. down and they they, yeah. they go Black where they got to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, within a footprint, that's that's a very important distinction. Uh, are there any other stories or, or experiences you'd like to share? I'll I'll share this one goofy story with you though. All right, two goofy stories. Awesome, go for it. One sulfur hexafluoride is a dielectric gas. And it would go inside this big, well, we refer to a donkey anatomy in parentheses. (laughs) (laughs) Inside an apparatus. (laughs) And, uh, well, sulfur hexafluoride's, um, uh, heavier than air gas, uh, but it's, it's inert. And, um, but it, 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 you know, things develop leaks, airplanes develop leaks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sailors do silly things like uh, they'll, they'll tell a, a, a boot camp sailor to go, you know, fetch a hundred. 100 yards of water line or, you know, 50 yards of flight line or something like that, or a bucket of steam. Right. And, uh, you know, so there's always somebody jerking around with somebody else. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm leading petty officer of the avionics shop. I'm, I'm responsible for all the aircraft's mission and um, aircraft communication systems. Got this uh, brand new kid. I, I don't even think he was, went to school. He was, he was one of those kids that comes from the fleet and just green as green as grass can be. And uh, one of the other techs, they go out there and they're going after a leak for the sulfur hexafluoride. And we've got this little beeper thing uh, that, that goes off and beep, 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 when it gets closer. Anyway, they find a leak and uh, they come back into the shop. And uh, the, the, the more senior petty officer says, uh, Scott, Scott, the, the, the uh, airman such and such has inhaled hexa, uh, sulfur hexafluoride. We called it SF6. Airman such and such has inhaled the SF6. I says, well, for heaven's sakes, man, get him on his head in the corner. Get that drained out of him. Of course, oh, no. going along with it. They stand this kid up in the corner on his head. So he's kind of standing there. The maintenance officer comes downstairs. He was in a mezzanine above my shop. He comes downstairs and he looks at me and says, why is that man standing in the corner on, on his head? Sir, he's uh, been exposed to sulfur hexafluoride. Huh. Very well. carry on (laughs) as you were Uh, a little while later actually probably a year or so later um a guy that i'd flown with in uh, in in the p3 squadron great guy from southern pennsylvania uh, academy grad uh salt of the earth fellow was the maintenance officer for the wing that we were attached to for administrative purposes at Barbers Point, which served the P3 squadron, ours, and another squadron at Barbers Point administratively. And he was the maintenance officer for the uh, full full Silver uh, Oak uh, commander, Navy 
pilot academy grad and 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 we'd been drunk together um uh, a lot um <laughs> and uh we had a problem with these, you know, we, we've talked about the airplane a little bit. The airplane has these crazy um, dog leg HF antennas, shortwave antennas that go from behind the wing to the tip of the horizontal stabilizer and then up to the top of the vertical stabilizer. And they're hung on a trapeze kind of apparatus that will allow them to blow away from the airplane if one ends up at break or something like that. They don't get wrapped up around the flight controls. Well, anyway, our sister squadron had couple of them drop off the airplane not a good thing when you're at patuxent river maryland and you're flying over delaware to get home no uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cabling yeah yeah it's uh, people don't like that landing on their house no <laughs> and so we had to go out and inspect all these things and and, and by design these these uh, dog leg antennas um, have an, uh, a, a feature characteristic in it that when the tension goes to zero these little clampy bits that are at the very, that attach to the airplane up behind the wings, they let go. And that will cause the whole antenna to blow off the airplane. Not blow like explosive, it'll just, springs will cause it to, to, to go off the airplane. This commander that I knew goes out to the airplane with my maintenance officer who saw the guy standing on his head. Evidently, he reaches up and grabs what he can grab standing on the horizontal stabilizer of the aircraft because mm -hmm. you can get there crawling up and walking out the outside. And he pulls it down and then lets it go. Boom! The thing comes off. Oh. Falls all over him. You know, fortunately didn't damage the airplane and, uh, and comes walking back in carrying this big wrap of 40 some odd feet of cable and springs and apparatus. Throws it down on the table in the shop. I look at him, uh, the maintenance officers, uh, my, my squadron's maintenance officer stand there. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, commander. And he says, uh, says, what's up with this? <laughs> and I said, well, sir, are you touching things? You don't know how to work with them again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my <Oops>. maintenance officer, <laughs> my maintenance officer didn't know. I know this guy and that uh, we'd been drunk together and we'd flown down to Diego Garcia and Guam and the Philippines and we'd been around and, uh, and he looks at me and he says, you'll never change. Will you? And I said, no, sir. What'd you do to my antenna? <laughs> did my aircraft. Why well, I pulled it down and let go of it. That's what it's supposed to do. And I said, yes, sir. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. When they go to zero tension, they fall off. <laughs> it's like a release. Yes. <laughs> And, uh, and so anyway, so that was a fun story there. No, no, I think it's great. It's great. I mean, I, I'm sure the maintenance officer's face and must have just lost oh. all blood and hit and gone completely fail. <laughs> am I going to have to take you up to see the skipper again? No, I've never been to the skipper's office. We did have one situation. This was funny. Okay. He got me going on, on some sea stories. So we're out there boring holes in the sky, right? Mm-hmm on a mission. And, uh, I mean, we're talking borexes. A lot of them are, are just really just, uh, just, you know, and a couple of guys sitting in comm central and everybody else standing around drinking coffee or sleeping. And, uh, um, and we could smoke back in the day. Um, but anyway, uh, it's, it's Oh, dark 30 out <laughs> doing something. And we're flying. We have female pilots. Um, we have female crew all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. in all positions <clears throat> so this one pilot she later this lieutenant um challenged me one day she says 
Um, what do you know about flying? We're grinding holes somewhere. I know you pull back on the stick. The houses get smaller. <laughs> bigger. Right. You pull back on the stick too long. They'll get smaller. Then they'll get bigger. Right. Um, <laughs> she says, it's not that easy. And little did she know, I had some time in a P3 flight simulator and I'd had some actual stick time in a P3. Never landed a real airplane, never taken off a real airplane. I've flown an airplane out over the water where I can't hurt anybody. Um, but anyway. Still, that's uh, really I, cool. I did land a simulator. Um, yeah. uh, I crashed the second time. Um, but another story, different time. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so... Um, I know some of the tricks that the pilots will do when, when they put a rookie in one of the seats and they put me in the seat in the left seat. And, um, I said, now keep your hands and your feet away from the controls. Well, this Lieutenant commander that was sitting in the right seat, he'd seen the show a couple times mm-hmm. and he kept his hands off everything. And I watched the trim knobs and I got the airplane. So, you know, uh, was fairly running nice and uh, straight and level, but full manual, not going up, uh, you know, the VSI, not moving too much. Well, all of a sudden I feel the tail of the airplane get heavy. And I know what uh, Lieutenant lady did is she went back and got some, went back, got some of the crew to run all the way aft. Oh, shift your CG, right? Right, (laughs) Your center of gravity, yeah. Come running forward, and I feel the nose getting heavy all of a sudden. (laughs) I says, well, I know how to play this game, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking over, and the the aircraft commander's sitting there. He's got his hands off, and uh, and everything looks kosher. And the next thing you know is I feel the nose, the tail getting heavy again. And, and, um, and, And one of the cycles that they were doing, after the third or fourth one, I end up pushing into their move. So oh. as they're running aft, I pull back. Right. And, um, they go faster. <laughs> they get a little bit, uh, yeah, they get a little bit light. They're loafers, right? Uh, yeah. Which is dangerous. So we stopped doing that. And somebody called us and don't do that anymore. You know? right. um, uh, but uh, so then we're, we're, we're jetting along and um, I can't figure out what this guy's doing. All I know is airplanes getting nose heavy. And I am putting trim into her and putting trim into her. And I'm looking over the console and, uh, and finally he lets go and boy, did we go up? <laughs> oh, he was, he was just pushing <laughs> forward on the stick. Power another, he got himself underneath that yoke and was pushing on that yoke. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> oh, yeah. all of a sudden you zoomed up. Yeah. Anyway. So that's, that's my awesome. experience to a pilot. Sorry. No, no, it's all good. It's yeah. uh multi-engine turbine time. I don't have any of that. So you're good. <laughs> yeah. I've got about an hour and a half. Hey. I flew, did fly a fast jet once. Really? I, I re-enlisted. I, I flew in a, um, I, I stipulated my re-enlistment when I went from the VP outfit, the, the sub hunter to go to the VQ outfit, um, to VQ three, um, that I wanted to fly in the backseat of a TA four that was stationed at, at Barbers point. And, uh, I got seat called Martin Baker and um, Aces Two, and uh, did the whole barometric scene again, having already done that. Nice. Um, and uh, and uh, we took off. We were flying uh, training mission for uh, a destroyer running uh, anti-air warfare stuff, and we were to run some profiles at the boat. And uh, he gave me the airplane. Uh, well, actually, we took off and he said, "Hey, it came along to drive, not to ride." 
and he gave me the airplane. I did a a seven G um, wrap up turn. Ooh, and, nice. Uh, and uh, watched the uh, tip tank shake. My G suit filled all up on me. That felt cool. That is in an awesome. airplane that if I'd have had to eject from, I would have been killed. Um, but uh, just by hitting everything in the damn thing, got my helmet banged on the goddamn canopy. <laughs> and my, I'm six four for heaven's sakes. Wow. I'm, I'm a big guy for that. And uh, I did a uh, did a roll, and uh, and a, a couple other jinking around, um, putting some putting some poop to it, and uh, and and wrapping it up about six and a half cheese with uh, with some knots behind it, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And then he uh, humiliated me coming back in, into the break at the pattern. And uh, I wasn't anticipating the way that he was going to break and smash my helmet into that canopy almost on my belt. <laughs> Did he do a 360 uh, circle break right before entering the pattern? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The aerobatics guys like to do that too. I flew with an aerobatics pilot and he did that in a, in a pit special. It's fun. Man, there's more. I've never had so much fun with my clothes on. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's you know. it's it's amazing. I mean, uh, you know, there's some flying upside down, and I've only I've only been able to do it once, but still, it's it's a lot of a lot of fun. The barrel roll was crazy because at at the speed we were, I just pulled back on the on the stick a tad, brought the nose up above the horizon a tad, and then laid it over. Now the 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 um the crazy thing about an A4 was is that you're you're uh, your roll rate was about 720 degrees per second. Wow. Um, at, at, uh, at, at, a, at a, you know, 600 knots or so. And, uh, it snapped right around and, and the, I didn't move. The world moved. Right. It's so quick. You, you almost can't even shift, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we did a barrel roll where that it was slower, a one G barrel roll. And you just watch the earth flop around in front of you. And it doesn't feel any damn different. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. we digress. The no, P3, that's... I'll tell you this about the P3 simulator. Sure. I'm landing the damn thing. The, the pilot and the engineers were, were landing the simulator. Line it up between your legs. Bring it down. Bring it down. I am not a pilot. I am not a pilot. Okay. Um, I, this is me playing with a big freaking toy. <laughs> and uh, bringing it down. Bringing the power off. Boom. Put it on the deck. And... uh and not a bad landing overall. Um, pushed forward on three of four engines. I left the number four engine at uh, essentially flight idle. Oh. Um, I did a wing over over Barber's Point, <laughs> 90 degrees, um, at probably under 500 feet. Had the aircraft cleaned up flying level on the, uh, on the opposite runway what? at about 50 feet above the deck, running out <laughs> over the ocean. Wow. Um, the, the pilot and the engineer were like, well, never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And uh, I came back around and crashed on landing. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty shook up by it. But yeah, man. Yeah, it, it, was, it was crazy. Uh, the, the, the aircraft turned to that dead engine in a heartbeat. And I just kept pouring. I redlined all three of the other ones. Wow. <laughs> and it just, yeah. nice, a nice little wing over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's, that's, you know, it's... The, the flying thing in the service and flying with Takamo was a privilege for me. I, um, last sea story on this, I got medically grounded right after I earned my first position wings as a flight technician. I could fly without a, a, an instructor aboard. And, um, I was training to be a, uh, airborne communications supervisor 
learning all the radio and stuff. These were black shoes from the Navy. Uh, brown shoes are air crew right. and, and aviation and black shoes are, uh, are, are shipboard. These are black shoe Navy radio men that, uh, that work for the, the, the squadron and handled and taught us all the, uh, the, the shipboard communication. We, we monitored a great deal of that type of broadcast stuff. And, uh, uh, I got grounded and I went to work for the Intel community doing some, uh, some stuff for the planning of, uh, of, of deployment, um, in the trans and post attack phases of a general nuclear war. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, very heady stuff back in the eighties. There's a lot of books by people like Ford and Blair and, and, and Bracken on, on, cold war stuff and there was all the heady stuff of star wars and there was all this mental basketball going on about uh fighting limited and protracted wars and um you know doctrine leads the operational behavior and um it was uh it was an interesting uh exercise that taught me i did a great deal of reading i i, I accumulated a tremendous library about uh and, and have maintained that library over time about command and control um it was, it changed my life. It, it, it prepared me to deal with the corporate world. Uh, I'm not a fancy educated guy. Um, I work for a company and I do some things with finance and lawyers, which well, I got no training in either of those, <laughs> um, but it taught me how to think, uh, the, the work and troubleshooting in the military, being around, um, people that, uh, were motivated and intelligent and, and having exposure to some things like, uh, trying to figure out one of digressing here a little bit, the way that the, the squadrons operated in the day, I don't know that they do so today, different world. We would fly between this two week deployment that I mentioned much longer ago mm -hmm. uh, in the conversation, we would go and we would stand the alert at Moffat. And then, uh, then we would fly to these different bases. And in between over a two week period, we would end up back at Moffat. And that was called dispersal. I'm sorry, dispersal. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't, uh, it, it, I have a picture that I put onto our shared site of all the squadron's airplanes at Barber's Point. Never after that picture was that ever the case. Wow. We always had several aircraft um, away. One always, at, one always in the air, one always at Moffat. Sometimes we would have four-hour alerts. They were always away. It was a fascinating, it was a fascinating environment. It was, um, it is today still, uh, a very important mission. There was a quest for information, uh, let, um, early in December, uh, by a Naval Air Development, uh, center, um, contemplating going back to the C 130s for the VLF transmission for the Tacomo mission. Um, now taken in a vacuum, that seems odd, but, um, when, it's considered that the air force is also looking at consolidating, um, the 30 and 30, uh, 40 year old E four and E six platforms into a different, uh, airframe, presumably a lighter, smaller, possibly just twin engine, uh, airliner type of airframe. Some, some thought of the seven fifty seven mm -hmm. um, with respect to the, uh, the C 32 that the air force flies out of, uh, Andrews and, uh, and, um, and then, uh, I also postulate that the, uh, the P3, I'm sorry, the P8, uh, Poseidon platform is a 737, eight, 900. It's an 800 body with 900 wings on it. Just to let you know that. Wow. Um, 
so as a different uh weight ratio right that they you know they're they're consolidating there's you know vital national interests are a very different thing today yeah um than they were when i was a boy and um the 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 neat thing about the the c-130j if it were to become the third generation tacomo type airplane is the e6s struggle with orbit uh they weren't the best for orbits the c-130 was fantastic with it uh just by nature of the fact that one airplane has to fly faster than the other yeah <laughs> and faster and heavier and the and the 130 with its straight wings i think you know in a turn you lose a lot of lift from the wing so i, I think having a straight wing helps versus a swept wing uh for slow for slow turning flights i mean that's that's my postulation. I could be wrong, but that just it, it makes sense to me. Well, the the one thirty had a uh, twenty two degree angle of bank orbit, and and uh, in the early tests of the E six A, which was just the basic Takamura craft, mm -hmm. they struggled because they had to hold the thing to um, a forty degree angle of bank. Wow, near stall <laughs> speeds. Yeah, um, not that we weren't flying far from stall in the in the one thirty, but. Um, you know, big swepling like that. That's that's a more precarious place. Yeah, when those things break, it's going to be nasty when it breaks. Like yeah. a one thirty breaks, and I imagine it's a more docile recovery than an E three or E six breaking. Yeah. Um, yeah, from it, from you know controlled flight. But the the final thing about that, and I'll say this one: the um, the interesting thing about these consolidation members uh, efforts, when when you think about the technology that was Tacomo in the sixties. And then became Takamo uh, 1 and 2, which were roll-on, roll-off vans and a 25,000-watt transmitter and a little teeny box that had a couple of guys sitting in it plugged into some other radios. The, um, the technology was primitive, um, and it evolved into a more sophisticated and robust technology in Takamo 4, 3 and 4, uh, through the 70s. Um, but fundamentally... Some of the processor power that was in these uh, was, um, even though we had a, an early computer, was remarkably um, primitive. Um, I watched a, a, a terrific uh, video about the memory construction for the Saturn V to control the Saturn V. Little teeny tiny wires with little teeny tiny uh, magnet rings on them arranged for uh, to be the solid state memory. Uh, some of the stuff that I was using wasn't a whole lot different than that. Right. Very yeah. robust, very, um, very durable stuff. And even though today's Hakamo and ABNCPs are networked like crazy, I'm sure, uh, with really sophisticated displays and that kind of stuff, some of the things like this VLF transmission uh, feature of Takamo from a, a durability and a survivability perspective you know, you need little more than an airplane with generators to make the trailing wires go out and come back, power the antenna, and a guy with a uh, a key mm -hmm. uh, tapping out CW, and, and it's it's called FSK frequency shift, as opposed to turning the amplifier on and off. Um, it's uh, it's just a tone. Um, we did that. I watched a guy do that with his foot once. <laughs> That's skills. Yeah, that was skill. <laughs> and every one of these guys, the CW operators, they told me about this, about the old uh, the key operators. They could tell one another's um, characteristics. Wow. Just for their keystrokes. Yep. yep. That's amazing. Yeah.
that's incredible. Yeah, th- there's a lot to be said about about redundancy um, and and ruggedness. And you know, the more complexity of the system, the more likely it is to fail or, or break. And that's engineering 101, right? I mean, don't right. if, it, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. One um, last key story. Sure, go for it. Weirdness, you mentioned the the engineering aspect of it, and you'll appreciate this. Okay. The VLF power amplifier was a six foot by six foot by 12 foot box, mostly filled with air. There was a section for the controller and the power supplies. There was a section for the vacuum tubes with their heat exchanger above them uh, to cool them with the deionized water that we had to test with micromos. And then there were these big uh, inductor sort of apparatus, and they're called variometers. But mostly it was air inside this thing. Huh. And uh, so, and it had interlocks, safety interlocks. Um, sadly, a fellow lost his life, uh, defeated some interlocks, and got all the smoke let out of him when that tune power, which you could do on the deck into the dummy load, hmm. hit him with 25,000 volts and about two amps Ooh. and uh, let all the smoke out of him. Um, and we're all smoke powered, brother. Yes, um, that's right. <laughs> we're mostly water. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. And when you heat it up, it turns to smoke. So <laughs> that's right. Doesn't smell good. Um, but uh, we had to wipe down the inside of that BLF power amplifier with lint-free cloths and alcohol, denatured alcohol, um, routinely to keep the dust out of inside of it because dust would cause arcing, amongst other misalignment things, would cause arcing that would interfere and create RMI and EMI, radiomagnetic interference and uh, electronic um, uh, interference mm-hmm. in our other um, receiver systems, which were uh, quite sensitive and could uh, uh, seriously degrade the mission. So we're always out there, you know, puffing on, uh, you know, sticking our heads in an unair conditioned box in Hawaii on a ramp, uh, sun beating down on oh, um, alcohol fumes working on our brain. Yeah. Um, not good alcohol either. No, right, uh, right. <laughs> not the kind you drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was amazing the the technology and this was not, um, yes, this was fifty year old technology, man. Yeah, yeah, half a century. I mean, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'll leave it with that. It was amazing. It's been wonderful talking with you. I don't uh, obviously I've uh, no problem talking about the subject. So. Scott, thank you so much for your time and your service. You have performed a duty that most people aren't even aware of, but ultimately I feel keeps all of us safe and performed a vital, vital function that is ongoing today and and necessary. So again, my thanks and and thanks for being on the show. Well, my pleasure indeed. Um, If I may be so uh, forward, it, it, it really is about all the men and women that have done the job before and after me and do it today. It's a privilege to talk about it, to have been a part of it. And uh, thank you very much, Juan. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also check out my YouTube channel. I'll leave the link in the show notes below. And lastly, you can find me on any social media platform at Pilot Photog. Be well, stay safe, and see you next time.